On the podcast with me today, my good friend, Kenny Hess. Kenny, I want to talk to you about your very unique and interesting origin story and backstory. But first, let's dig into Rockin' River Fest 2021, slated for August long weekend. How realistic is it that this is going to come off this year? Well, um, you know, I mean, of course, I have everything to lose and nothing to gain from it not going on. So our, our absolute hope is that in the next little while we get uh, information stating that, yes, we can go ahead. But uh, as anybody knows that's been in business, business is business, and we have to go and play by the rules that the government has set out. So we're kind of waiting on Bonnie Henry to give us a go-ahead. If it does go ahead, I think we have a terrific lineup. I know that we've got quite a few of your artists on there, and we've got some terrific, terrific Thank artists. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> no problem. I don't do it because I like you. I just do it because you got great artists. So. <laughs> no, and I, I prefer it that way, actually. Uh, yeah. It's better when the artists can stand on their own. But um, what what do you think some of the solutions are that may uh, ease the restrictions around um, um, some of the, you know, pertaining to what the government wants, but also give the consumer some level of confidence? Like, in a perfect world, if you were running the show, would you yeah. want people on site socially distanced? Would you want uh, people on site who have only been vaccinated? Would you have rapid result testing at the gate? Like, what do you think it is? How are we going to get this festival business back on track? Because Lord knows the artists need it. The promoters need it. People like you who are involved in it in many different facets, including being a promoter and owner, you need it. What do we do here? Well, to be honest with you, I think there's only one answer. It's not it's not being speculative and going, well, maybe if we could do this, like, you know, the social distancing and that. Because you and I both know music, a couple of beer and pretty girls, nobody's social distancing. They're not going to. Uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to spend a million dollars on security to make sure that the two people who came there to have a riot don't have fun. We separate them. So that doesn't work. To me, the only way that this gets done is if we all buckle down and say, you know what, we really need to wear our masks. We really need to follow the guidelines that the, the health board has set out. They're not setting it out for some conspiracy theory that all oh, they're trying to they're trying to eliminate this or they're trying to get control of this. Horseshit. You know, the truth of it is we need to follow the guidelines for whatever time it takes so that we can all get back on board, not just worried about how do musicians eat, how do promoters eat. Because as you know, as you mentioned, I'm a, our, first and foremost, I'm an artist. I've had 119 shows canceled so far. I have another 40 shows in Arizona and California and New Mexico, Texas and Florida that are going to disappear. They are. Realistically, they're going to disappear based on the fact nobody would follow the guidelines. We had a few people going, nope, I don't have to wear a mask. And because of it, we've had this massive growth in it. Now, I will say Canada's been a lot better, but we need to be as good as we can. And let's get back to work because that's all we all want to do. I mean, we want to go to work. We got to feed our families. Uh, you know, I love music and I love the industry of the music. I hate a lot of the people in it, <laughs> me included. <laughs> I think we're all idiots. I think we're all idiots for being involved in the music industry, but it's an addiction none of us are going to get rid of. So for God's sake, let's just 
you know, let's try and get everybody on track and let's pray that they get these inoculations ready to go. Because once that happens, Jim, we're going to go at it full force where I think it's going to be a really big boom for the music industry. I really do. Uh, I think the world is realizing how much they need music. Yeah, and I don't disagree with your overarching philosophy of, you know, we need to endure some short-term pain for long-term gain. We've got to get people back on track. And, and that means some of us, well, actually all of us participating in whatever safety mechanisms the science seems to dictate. I don't think I don't think you and I are going to have an argument on that. But in a no. perfect world, you know, you, you keep saying follow the guidelines, and you're right. But if we don't have guidelines, we can't follow them. So as, a, as an individual who's in this business and also has a pretty good understanding of how to pull off events, um, what do you think would make the most sense? Like, how do, you, how do you keep your patrons safe in a perfect world if you were the guy dictating the rules? Okay. If I was able to, if it came down to, if I'm able, they say, okay, you can throw a festival. What is the best way to keep your people safe? I do think that we need to do the standard, pretty easy stuff, like allow people to have masks. You know what I mean? Like make sure that they are available to them. Make sure that there's lots of hand washing stations, all that same crap you're hearing every day about that. Same stuff as Walmart. The same stuff as Walmart. Exactly. That they're a perfect example of that. You walk in, you can't go in without a mask on. So you go in with a mask, you put it on. Everybody still talks. Everybody still, you know, gets through their day. Yes, it takes away from fun. So in a perfect world, if I could do it in 2021, I would say, please wear your masks. Please do that. Please, you know, do all of the, the sanitary things. I also believe that while we cannot set a, a standard and say, you have to show us an inoculation paper. I think that rapid testing would be an absolute must at the gates. It would be an absolute must at the gates, which well, that's, as you can that's imagine, the idea that, that I'm really attracted to because I think if you I think if you ask people to show up earlier and you yep. contextualize that with, hey, listen, we want a safe environment. We don't want a super spreader event. You know, the last thing we want is is for you guys to pay us money and have have to shut down the second day. So show up early. We're going to need an extra hour or two of your time. Get the rapid result and rapid response test, and then you can proceed through the gate. Right now, now the only problem with that is that people might be going into town, mixing and mingling in other businesses, picking up groceries, whatever that might be. There's not a lot you can do about that. But if if people on site at least cross the barrier of okay, you can go on site now. You're you're obviously testing negative. Um, the chances of anything catastrophic happening plummet significantly. They, they do. They do. Here's the only issue is you have to corral everybody once you've given them that test for two hours. So say individual A goes in and he's there with individual one through 7,000. And they go in and they're all, and we're lucky on our property, as you know, we have some really good staging areas. So if we had a muster station up at the top and we ran in the first 500 people in an hour, right? So we got 500 people sitting in there. If one of those individuals comes back with a positive test, I have to move all 500 out and retest them again because they yeah. have been, you know, that's where 
this, while it's the right thing to do, we have to really do some fast thinking on it. You know, we have to figure out how do we do this? Do we run a test up, say, up on top of the Coquihalla? So that when you get to the top of Coquihalla, you stop to get your test. By the time you get there, you have an email from us or a text from us saying, yes, you're clear to go. You know what I mean? Like there are ways around it. There, and and mm-hmm. as you can tell, I've thought of it. <laughs> you, know, you know, we've we've definitely been looking at every way. Hopefully, I mean, to me, I would I would love to have it if we could that you know, everybody showed that they had a, uh, they've already been inoculated. Uh, Chances of that happening are slim to none for 2021. Uh, You know, uh, I think you were on the call as well with Bonnie Henry, uh, when Bonnie said that uh, without a question, it's going to be September before everybody's inoculated. And And your event happens at the end of July, beginning of August. So we're about a month shy of the, the potential of that being uh, a reality yeah and one of the things we thought of is can we move the festival to september but we can't because of weather concerns and everything else you know you start uh, it just everything not only that uh, you know i have uh, 30 bands already booked on my show that uh, you know how do i all of a sudden adjust that and say oh by the way we're moving it two months you know you can't do right. that you know, well, uh, it's not like they have a lot going on in September either, but uh, <laughs> that, may, that may be where we have to go at some point. The thing that I've uh, uh, been reiterating in any conversations I've had with uh, Bonnie Henry or any of her individuals or any government official for that matter is yeah. we do need sort of some overarching rules. And we've got some of the best creative minds on the planet Uh in the music industry. I mean, this is a business of innovation. This is a business where you work for five, 10 years, the rug gets pulled out from underneath you. You've got to adapt and you've got to survive, right? So we are used to that and we will figure out a way as long as we have some rules to proceed by. And that, you know, I'm with you. I'm not an outlaw. I don't want to, I don't want to put on an event that is going to come back to haunt me, the brand and or endanger the people who have bought tickets to my events. I don't want that. Exactly. But exactly. some level of, of structure, some rules that we can follow and even adapt to a degree to make them even more effective for the consumer experience, that's what we all need. I think that's what everybody right now is pining for in our industry. Yeah, and to be honest with you, I don't think uh, the government is uh, being neglectful of that. I think there's a lot of conversations going on behind closed doors. And I think they're allowing the industry in because I know you have, and so have I been on a couple of calls with government officials, with the, uh, you know, with uh, the big and the small boys of the industry. And they are looking to try and collect data to see it. But um, like you say, we are much more an industry of data of uh, adaptation than the government. I mean, the government, that's not how they work it. You know, they, uh, so hopefully we can find a meeting of the minds and get to that. But if you ask me honestly what I think it's going to take, I think it absolutely comes down to the science. I think we're going to have to wait until they can get inoculations. And the, the issue with that is that until they know for sure 
Like if they knew for sure right now, everybody will be inoculated by September, then maybe we could do some moving. Like you say, we could move some stuff around. But for me to do that, or any other festival or any other agency, um, you know, uh, promoters like yourselves, they have to do, there has to be an absolute structure to it because a lot of the things that don't get noticed is like in the festival, when it gets canceled, I, not only do you lose, you know, the, the festival itself, I've lost all of the investment that I've put in for advertising, for deposits, for all of that. Thank God musicians, uh, you know, and agencies and everybody's come together and realized we're in a time where we can't do that right now. We can't be putting deposits out and stuff because it'll eat the industry from within. It'll absolutely right. kill it. You know, so we have to make sure that has, everybody retains some level of fluid cash flow. Exactly. And 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 I think that's that's vital. We recognize it as promoters, and I know through my, you know, as an artist, I noticed that, you know, everybody that's the way it's working for all of my shows too. There's no, you know, it's just the way it works. If they cancel, I can't hold their feet to the fire. And um we need time to advertise. This is it. If we don't know by the middle of February, there's no way that I can put on a three or four million dollar show without heavy, heavy advertising. And that that window is is coming up where you know we can't we can't make that call. We can't go, okay, we're gonna do the show, we're gonna move it, we're gonna do all of that without enough opportunity get your advertising out to make sure that your people know because you and I talked about this earlier for us to do a 4,000 person show is great for those 4,000 people but I I, I can't lose a million dollars you know <laughs> I, you know and nobody no, wants I, me to no no of course not I mean uh, you know the, the the festivals at least for the um, ecosystem of the Canadian country music business are, you know, they're the golden goose. You don't want to kill the golden Absolutely. goose. You know, you want to make sure that it, it continues to produce year after year. So we all have a vested inter interest to make sure that you and festivals like you uh, stay in business. Now, May 1st has been the tentative target date whereby we might understand uh, more about the border uh, opening up for mm -hmm artists from the U.S. and their crews and their bands to come into Canada, failing the opening of the border. Um, a lot of festivals that I've been talking to have talked about a strictly Canadian lineup. That must include, obviously yeah, be something where you guys are at too. Yes. Yeah, that's 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 including myself. As you know, we've had uh, we've had good conversations about that ourselves. And I do think that that is something that is a very strong possibility. I mean, look at look at our terrific uh, Canadian content. Nobody can complain about what a wonderful show it is. I mean, I, I, I could start naming them from the top right down, you know, I, I could keep going for a half hour about how many great artists we have. And we do, you know, and uh, I and you know, know that... You're no stranger to having Canadians headline as well. Like we Not had Brett Kitzel there a few years ago, headlined. I think we broke a record that night for attendance. And uh, you've done a great job at putting Canadians forefront in the spotlight in the headliner position of your stage, which by the way, isn't common across Canada and um, no. and done very well in, in spite of that um, 
somewhat dogmatic uh, idea that Canadians can't draw. You've proven that that's not the case. Absolutely, Jim. And and again, that comes back to the fact that I've been an artist my whole life. You know, it's I, I am still to this day, you know, I'm older than dirt. But the truth of it is, is that I have always maintained uh, that Canadian entertainers are every bit as good as any other artist out there. The problem is, is that there is this this discrepancy that's made not by the fans themselves. Do you think anybody listens to Brett Kissel's song or Dallas Smith's song or Aaron Pritchett's song or any of these great artists who, by the way, the three I named are, are great artists. They are, and there's so many more. But they don't listen to that song any differently than they listened to Kane Brown or, you know... Whoever you Morgan want to Wallen name, or, yeah, Morgan yeah, Wallen, or, yeah. they don't know the difference until the announcer at radio says, this is not a big star in America. If you took away social media right now and just played the radio songs the way they used to, you would absolutely have just as big a Canadian stars as you would American artists. So it's been the bane of my existence for the last 35 years. Because I remember getting play on those radio stations at the same time, you know, this was back before, just before Garth Brooks and all of them came up, but when George Strait and all of that, and I was getting play on those stations along with a lot of my friends that are still in the music industry today. And the truth of it is, the fans never looked at you any differently once they got to see your show than they did at the Americans. And when Brett Kissel's on stage on a headlining on a Friday night, it made no difference whatsoever. They listened to a great artist singing great songs, being a wonderful entertainer. And that's all that mattered to them. So the problem is not with the ability of the artist to entertain at the same level as the American artist, because there is, there's no discrepancy. We all have a tongue, you know, and, and in my opinion, I think, for the most part, most Canadians are better entertainers. They're just friendlier people. They understand the, the art of connecting to people. And so there is a wonderful uh, ability for the Canadian artist to entertain. Our big issue is not that. It is the fact that we don't have the huge social media push. We don't have the radio DJs saying this is, this is the huge star the way that they do with the Luke Bryans. And, and it's not their fault. You know, this is this is the industry we're in. I we also I'm don't rambling. have the massive. We don't have the massive platforms either. I mean, I, I think I think social media is its own animal. But we don't have a Jimmy Kimmel. We don't have Good Morning America. We don't have those exactly. massive media platforms, and and we don't have the media machine in Canada that can uh, drive millions of eyeballs uh, to a particular artist, a particular song, and help with that brand entrenchment. So I, I agree. I think the other the other reality is that the U.S. marketplace is 10 to 15 times size of the Canadian marketplace, especially as it pertains to country music. So as Absolutely. I often um, dig into and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, the price discrepancies between American headliners and Canadian headliners. You know, you might have a Canadian headliner who's charging, you know, 100 to 125,000, a lot of American headliners are a half a million USD or more. Um, a lot Much of them are more. in that 750 realm. Some are a million. Yep. 
Uh, some are above a million, depending on, on what the asking price is and how hot they are. But the reality is those artists can get a fee close to that asking price any day of the week throughout the United States to make the case for them to come to Canada for a weekend. Um, you really need to pay them, obviously, and make a compelling case. It's not like Americans really give a shit whether or not our dollar is uh, 76 cents compared to theirs. They're getting paid in U.S. dollars. And the market demand is just so much higher in the U.S. that they don't necessarily need to come to Canada where Canadian artists need to play in Canada. That's the only way they're going to make a living for the most part. Absolutely. And and that's something that, uh, you know, that comes back to why it's a very, very touchy situation uh, for a lot of the shows to go out and now adapt and go strictly to Canadian. And I want to reiterate, it is absolutely not because of the ability, the talent, the music, or anything of the Canadians. It's the fact that while I pay, you know, in most cases, I pay maybe 40% uh, the, the, the price of, a, of an American artist, let's, you know, for a top, uh, you know, a headline Canadian artist, it's, it's, it's maybe 40% of what the American, maybe even as low as 30%. The problem is, is I only draw however many artists that or however many fans that there are. So it's a very risky situation. I want to do it. There's no question. I, you know, again, I come back to you and I have talked about it. I've talked with every agency in Canada, a lot of the American agents, you know, like Nick, who runs a lot of the American, uh, or pardon me, a lot of the Canadians out of Nashville. Uh, so I've talked to them all and we're, you know, we're definitely looking at that as an option, but we need somehow to get everybody to make sure that they know that while this is a Canadian show, it's still a fantastic show because if I don't yeah, get the it, showmanship me, isn't the question. It's it's more no. about the brand entrenchment and uh, and the reality that you have to pay artists proportionate to their draw. Yeah, and I have to pay everything else the exact same price. Do you know what I mean? Like most people don't look at a show and go, "Okay, the the artist costs a hundred thousand dollars, so you need to raise a hundred thousand dollars." What they don't understand is that the land costs you a hundred and twenty five hundred and fifty thousand dollars to rent. The security is a hundred thousand dollars. The the production is a hundred thousand dollars. Your advertising is three hundred thousand dollars. You know what I mean? Like there's so much that goes with it that you know those costs are exactly the same whether I have American artists or whether I have Canadian artists. And that's where the real discrepancy comes in. It's not like the show cost me 30% of what the, what the show would have cost with the American artists on it. It costs a lot more than that because you still have all of your existing costs exactly the same number, whether you have American artists or whether you have Canadian artists. So yeah, there's where, so much more money to deploy against infrastructure with these outdoor shows. Oh, I don't think people okay. understand that, you know, the, the, the artist and a headliner on stage is just a, a, a small component of the overall spend for a weekend when you're putting on a big outdoor event with all of the infrastructure costs in place. 30% maximum. Maximum 30% is your artist. If you're spending more than that, you're going to lose money. And that's, that's so sad with an outdoor show. Like, 
thought never goes into the fact that every one of those washrooms cost me, every single bathroom cost me about $160, $170 over the weekend. You know, every single one of them. And there's hundreds on site. And if we're you talking know, about 2021, those washrooms are going to have to be sanitized between each use. So there's going to be an extra cost there. A massive cost. A massive cost. How many people can you afford to have? Like, you, you're going to have one person for every four or five toilets that I have to pay $20 an hour to go in right after somebody's gone to the washroom and clean it again before anybody else can go into that washroom. So think of the lineups. You know, like there's there's so many logistical nightmares that come with this. And that's where I stay up at night, you know, vomiting, thinking, how am I going to pull this off safely? Because honestly, Jim, it's no different than if somebody fell off of, uh, you know, off of the top of our, uh, you know, tower or something and killed themselves at the festival. I would live with that the rest of my life. I would thinking, why didn't I think somebody could sneak up there and fall off? You know what I mean? And so right. the last thing I want, I mean, somebody dies of a heart attack, you know, thank God it's never happened at my at, at, at any of our shows. Nobody's ever uh, died. We've had people get hurt. You know, we, we've, we've had things happen, accidents that there's just no way that I can, you know, I, I can think of that in advance. I can see all the situations in advance. I'm not a genie. But if, if, if I don't do every bit of due diligence and see a path forward that we've got everything covered, there's no way I'm going to endanger other people's lives. I'm just not. And, and that's a sad reality. I, I, you know, I'd, uh, I'd rather sit at home and, you know, eat puffed wheat you know, for the next year. <laughs> yeah. We might be doing might that be. anyway, Kenny. That might be, <laughs> yeah. that might be the 2021 plan anyway. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, listen, I think all of that's laudable. I think all that's respectable. I do think that the demographic, the, the primary demographic that attends your festival is in a very low risk category as it pertains to uh, COVID-19. Um, but you don't know who those people might be interacting with. Uh, beyond Thank the festival. You. So I totally understand that you, you don't want a 23-year-old to contract COVID that might make them sick for three or four days, shake it off, but they're in touch with their 77-year-old grandmother. And, and you know, we all know the, the, uh, the, the argument around that, right? So I, I totally yeah. understand where you're coming from. And um, I think that all we can do is continue to uh, dip, diplomatically pressure our health officials to follow the science, to give us some, some mechanisms by which we can return our business to some level of engagement, even if it's not optimal, even if it's not 15,000, 20,000 people in a concert bowl, what can we do? What can we pull off safely um, and, and still keep our business alive? Absolutely. We can adapt, you know, and, uh, you know, just kind of a, the first thing that came to mind when you mentioned about the, the, the kids that come and see this show. And it's, I, I always look at or the way I've been looking at it, I should say, is that uh, I don't want the fans of the show going home and giving, giving uh, coronavirus to the fans of my music. <laughs> oh man i want to bounce back to uh this idea of the discrepancy between um americans and what they get paid and canadians and what they get paid yeah. because that's a hot button issue but but one of the solutions to that and i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this one of the things i preach to my 
clients is that this is somewhat of a patience game as well, because this country music continues to globalize thanks to social media, thanks to streaming, thanks to streaming services like Spotify. And we start to develop markets in Ireland and Italy and Spain and obviously throughout Australia and, and um, around the world. As artists begin to build a brand outside of Canada, which gives them the ability to tour outside of Canada, they can increase the demand for their show, their product somewhat um, so that they're not squeezing the Canadian market dry every summer and every year with a tour. So I think one of the big benefits of globalization of the format is that it is going to give Canadian artists the opportunity to give our marketplace a rest every once in a while. Absolutely. Because the truth of it is you take, you know, like Keith Urban. Okay. If Keith Urban in Canada played at everything bigger than the opening of a letter, then he wouldn't be able to demand any money neither because you could see him everywhere and anywhere. And that's that. the whole thing is about creating demand. You said it already. I have nothing intelligent to offer to it or nothing, you know, that's going to go, oh, that's revolutionary. Nothing. The truth of it is, is we have to do that. We have to get our artists playing outside of the country and, and, and growing this, you know, growing their own, their own crop. And if we don't, it's the same old thing. Like you say, overplaying any artist gets it to the point where their value drops significantly. Um, having said that, I don't think all of our artists are overplayed at all. I don't think that is the issue. I think, again, the issue is that you have, you know, a tenth or less of the amount of eyes on them at any given time, and therefore the demand is not there. Um, that doesn't mean they don't want to hear our artists. It's just we can't get them to pull just the same they might, amount. They might have already... They might have already watched or, or you know, yeah. paid to, to see that artist three or four times uh, leading up to your festival on various hard ticket shows or other soft ticket shows. And there has to be some level of exclusivity. Um, and you're right. The American artists, they're just they don't come up here as much. They don't perform as much. So there's more of a demand or more of an opportunity for them to release more songs, which builds the demand uh, in between touring cycles in Canada or summer festivals. And that's a big part of why the discrepancy exists. But I think it's important to dig into that so people understand it, understand that it's not necessarily a, uh, a cultural bias. It's more of a, a, a practical bias, uh, if you will. It's all about bums and seats. It's like the, the one other thing I'm very proud of, and of course, Becca, my daughter, makes sure that uh, I adhere to it as, as, as close as I can. We're both huge advocates of, of female artists. Like, uh, I, I, I just, I am, you know, I grew up loving all the great uh, female country artists of old. So we're very cognizant of the fact that you, you know, we have a lot of female artists on every show, no matter what. But the truth of it is that to put a female headliner on is a lot more risky for one reason. And that's it. It's all about bums in seats. That's what it's about. And most of the girls want to come and see that pretty young cowboy. And when the girls come, the boys follow. You know, but boys are not so, you know, the, the, I shouldn't say boys, but men are not so, uh, 
you know, they're not so eager to go out and see the female artists the same way that the, the women want to go see a male artist. So it's all of, to us, it's all about watching how you spend your money. So sadly, women make so much less money than men do, but it's not based on a bias. It's based on what can I make? Because at what point should I have to pay too much money for anybody? It doesn't make sense that I lose money just to have somebody on my show. And so it makes it hard, you know, and man, I love, uh, man, I love so many of the, the female artists that, and Canada has a huge crop of wonderful young women that are terrific artists, but they just don't draw the, they, they just don't draw the crowd. And any small promoter knows that anybody who's doing 200 seaters, boy, you know, Jim, we've done lots of shows, 200 seats up to, to 5,000 seats, you know, on those 200 seats, when there's five empty seats, you didn't make any money, you know? So that's, and, that's, that's more of a philosophical approach. And I, I don't want to discard that, but I, I, I yeah. have dug into this a little bit. I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on it because, um, I have the same concern. It's like, okay, why does this discrepancy between <clears throat> male headliners and female headliners exist? And how come we've only got a few female headliners that have broken through that threshold? Carrie Underwood, obviously Reba. Um, uh, more recently, well, I, you know, you've had Miranda Lambert. And, yeah. and I think part of the reason is that I, I did some research last year and, and found, and this number might be old, so... But I found at the time that 12% of all music, country music, service to the DSPs, the digital streaming platforms, are performed by female artists, by women. So, so 12%. So that means that 88% are, are lead male vocals, okay? Yeah. So to use an analogy, it's essentially one in 10, right? So... So we've got a marathon race. I always use this analogy where we've got a hundred entrants, uh, 90 are men, 10 are women. The top 10 finishers are nine men and one woman. That's not necessarily a sexist result. That is a proportionately accurate result. So the question isn't why aren't women getting as much airplay? Why aren't there as much female uh, why aren't there as many female headliners? Why is that not proliferated? The question is, how do we attract more females to roll the dice, get into this crazy ass music business, deploy 10 years of critical years, by the way, of their lives, at least towards building a brand in this industry? Because right now it looks to me like it's it's off kilter in terms of the amount of engagement female to male. So we need to understand the causal uh, uh, reasons for that. And then we need to encourage more women to take up the torch and get into the business. And that's not to say that, that there aren't plenty of them out there trying right now. And I know that if, if you're hearing this and you're a female artist, you might feel um, as though this is a bit of an explanation um, or you may feel a bit offended, you know, you've, you've got the right to feel either way. But to me, it comes down to science and numbers, just like the earlier part of our conversation pertaining to COVID-19. Yep. It's like, how do we attract 
more female artists to roll the dice, get into this business, because that seems to be the problem. Now, maybe the solution is 50-50 radio airplay, men to women, to get more ears on female voices uh, and encourage more young women at the ages of, uh, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old to go, I can sing. I would love to be Carrie Underwood one day or, or have a brand like hers one day, Taylor Swift, um, and and then go after that level of career. But I, I think the issue is deeper than we all want it to be. And I think it's much more complex than we all want it to be. And I think we need to get to the bottom of that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think it's anything sinister. I don't think it's anything that's, uh, you know, maligning uh, female artists in the least. And I sure hope I didn't come off that way because I'm a, I'm a huge fan. And, uh, you know, I've put my, my money where my mouth is many times. No, I I don't think you did. I I think I think your your theory is is uh, I think your theory is solid. And I mean, and it's experiential as well. It's just if we boil it down to numbers, well, how do we get you know, if we go back to that that analogy of the the marathon or the race, how do we get more females to enter the race? Because then we'll we'll start seeing a different result at the upper end of that echelon. See, and and I and I like I, I like what I would have to refer to as your theory on that because the truth of it is if you take the top 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 artists there's a uh, female artist there's very few that have been able to maintain a career like you say Reba was a great example I mean at no point while Carrie Underwood was being paid the six fifty seven fifty she wasn't drawing the same numbers as the equivalent. Uh, male artists and that's got nothing to do with promoters it's got nothing to do with anybody it's just that's the way it works i spend as much money on advertising for a female artist as i do for a male artist i uh, i'm i'm as accommodating in every way shape or form i think that at radio they definitely do not uh, play as much uh, female artists and i don't think it's one in ten on on radio uh, maybe it is, and I'd, I'd love to find out that if there's 10 or if there's 11 artists and, you know, or 10 artists and one of them is a, is a, is a female artist, I would like to think that she gets the same amount of airplay. Uh, you know, I don't want to lay this at the feet of radio neither. I just think <laughs> I can't be mad, you know, if, if a guy likes steak better than he likes pork, they're both wonderful. You know what I mean, and I I, I can't be upset by that. So yeah, I, consumer I preference is what it is, and and I I don't disagree with that. Well, it, it let's is. parlay and, and this a little bit into another part of the conversation, which is the the reality that some artists, uh, Carrie Underwood being a great example, I've toured Carrie multiple times. We yes. do incredible hard ticket business with her. She does amazing business inside arenas in sort of a contained environment with less uh, variables. And and she can still headline a festival and and obviously draw a soft ticket as well or a softer ticket in a festival lineup. But there are artists, not just female artists, male artists as well, who will draw really well in a theater, really well in arena. But for some reason, they do not translate on stage at a festival quite as well you know we've seen examples of many examples of this over the years oh 
Oh, without a question. And, and we, we'll, we'll stay away from naming them, but we have a couple right here in Canada who are fantastic artists in a, in a hard ticket sale, which, you know, I, I know most of your fans are, uh, of your podcast are musicians. But for those of you who don't, a hard ticket is just when it's you as an artist and you go and you play the Queenie Theater and they say, you know, like Jim Cressman is playing at the theater, buy your ticket for Jim Cressman. That's a hard ticket. A soft ticket is Jim is one on the line. That's a cheap ticket for that show, my friend. Yes. It's a cheap <laughs> ticket for that but, specific show. But, but I, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm but, glad you're explaining that to people. It's, it's someone dedicating you know, 50, 60, $70 to see a very specific artist in a headline scenario in a, in a theater or an arena uh, yeah. versus uh, watching an outdoor festival as with that artist potentially headlining or being part of a lineup. And, and it's an interesting phenomenon because there are plenty of artists out there who do great business uh, indoors, but if you put that same artist outdoors, they might draw half the amount of people and that's a difficult one to figure out. Yeah, I, I don't think it's all that different to figure out, to be honest. I think it comes down to the consumer again. I, I really don't think it's hard to figure out, Jim. If I look, and, and let me use a friend of both of us who is fantastic. Uh, I mean, you know, he, uh, I'm not going to say the, the name just because I don't want to have anybody peeing in my cornflakes. But um, we, we both have worked with artists who they have a terrific hard ticket. And the reason that they do is immediately when it's a hard ticket, it expands your audience uh, age-wise. All of a sudden, you can start bringing in, like Carrie Underwood is a perfect example. My mother would have gone to see Carrie Underwood. My, my sisters, my, you know, my children would go see Carrie Underwood in a theater because they know they're safe. It's a nice, safe environment. There's this big fear about the fact that I'm not going to go to a festival. I don't know how the seating is. I don't know where the bathrooms are. I don't want to pee in a, in a, a plastic toilet. There's all of those factors that come in. And, you know, so leave all the entertainment part of it out. So therefore, they're great at going, having that audience in the palm of their hand and being able to whisper to them like Charlie Pride used to be able to do. Guy, wonderful entertainers like that. But Charlie put him on the big stage out, outside. It's a much younger crowd, everything. It's more raucous. They want you to get up and, and, and have that ability, uh, you know, like, like Brett has, where Brett can go out and, hey, how you doing? And, and really, really have fun with them, you know, and get that, that audience response. Uh, Neil McCoy is the perfect example. Neil McCoy is one of the best festival artists that you have. He doesn't sell tickets, but he makes your people so happy when they see him entertain. You know, he's he's not the guy you hire to sell tickets. He's the guy that you bring there as a support artist to make your show much, much better. And and it does. It makes it better because he's got that energy. And, and again, coming back to why they sell, I believe, you know, a lot of artists sell well in a closed environment because of the safety of the environment itself. It expands your your sales base. I'm never going to sell a lot of tickets to people in their 60s for my festival. Never, not in a I million years. I think there's years. something to be said too for the um, for the the type of art. So let's take Aaron Prochet for example. You know, with songs like "Hold My Beer," "Boat on the Water," yeah. he has he has a brand that he has built around a high energy show, 
Sure, he can go indoors and play a club, play a theater, play an arena. But if you really want to see the best of Aaron Pritchett and you really want to be elevated in terms of your mood, watching him on a big stage at a festival is exactly how that happens. You know, that that the, the type of artistry that he has that aligns itself very well with the party atmosphere of a festival um, just seems to work time and time again. I mean, he doesn't get he doesn't get burnt out on festivals. You could put Aaron on stage every year at a festival and he's still going to deliver an amazing show. Everybody's going to have a good time. Um, yeah. But there are artists where there, there is a real demarcation. And, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the brand that they have. Some artists brand is built around good times, drinking, fun, backslapping, um, congregational, getting together with fans. Some artists are a bit more personal, a bit more intimate. And, uh, it's, it's not that either are good or bad. It's just that one has a different level of appeal in an outdoor festival atmosphere than the other. Okay. So what we just did right there through conversation is we proved that there is not a bias. In my opinion, we proved there's not a bias against female artists or a bias against tall artists or short artists or fat artists or thin artists. It's preference of the audience. And so while some audiences prefer to be sitting in a chair in a comfortable environment watching an artist, you know, the Charlie Prides of this world, the Don Williams of this world. Don Williams sold every bit as many records as the artists of that day that were high energy. You know what I mean? The, the Hank Williams Jr. and all of those guys. But, and he sold just as many tickets. But it was just but he was more of a balladeer. Absolutely. It was a different venue. So, you know, to me, I have to come back to the wonderful female artists that are out there and say, please don't feel that anybody is slighting you in any way because we're absolutely not. It, it, it makes me cringe to think of that. I, my favorite artist in the world is my daughter, Becca. <laughs> but, no uh, bias in that at all. None. <laughs> but I am the audience. I have the right to my preference. You know, like I say, I'm I'm definitely I love pork and I love chicken, but I probably prefer steak. You know what I mean? So that's that's all it is. And, uh, you know, therefore, steak's more expensive. That's, you know, so I, I think, you know, you go to a restaurant, you order chicken, you order beef. They, they cost the same amount per pound to raise, but they can demand more for beef, you know, and uh, it's not fair to the chicken. It's not. Um, but it's reality, you know, well, and I chicken think might be lucky in that particular analogy and scenario. <laughs> he's not as high in demand or she's not as high in demand. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your background as an artist too. Um, uh -huh. a lot of people these days know you as an artist, but they know you as well as, as a festival promoter and as a talent buyer, you were signed to what was at the time an unprint, unprecedented eight album deal with Mike Curb at Curb Records back in uh, the late 90s. Yeah. What did you learn through that process that you would feel would be behooving and helpful to artists who are looking for a big deal these days? Because there are a lot of artists who sort of like, and I don't want to say it's an illusion, but sometimes it's an illusion. There are artists who go, well, if I just got a big record deal, I would be famous. Um, but there's so much more to it than that. It's a grand illusion. It really is. 
And uh, I think even more so than in my day. Yes, I signed a fantastic deal. But the truth of it is, I went into it um, the same way that I go into everything. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly, um, I, I try and be as astute as I possibly can. I try and understand every angle. So when I wrote my, album, my, my record deal, I got an unbelievable record deal. I ended up at the time with 14% of gross, which is unheard of. It is. It's unheard of. But I so gross album sales. Yes, fourteen percent. That was it's a pretty good royalty rate. It was huge. It was it was ridiculous, and I actually hurt myself because you know it was one of those things that nobody's going to make any money. I'm going to make some money. I you know I did all right, but uh, it was a bad deal in the long run. I thought it was a good deal, but. Aside from that, what the what I would say is those those big deals I couldn't get out of it fast enough to be honest with you because the industry, um, I, I you know last thing I want to do is disillusion anybody. Um, I I did not become a star for a variety of reasons. Uh, most of them were my own fault. You know I was impatient. I, uh, but I had, at the time I had a house full of children and, uh, was very, very much a father. I've, I've been very, very close to my children and now thank God I'm close to my grandchildren. But, uh, I, I know I'm rambling. Sorry, Jim, but no, 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 uh, no, no, you, you, you had, so you had obligations and responsibilities and you had pressure on that front, but you also had a dream to be a worldwide superstar. Of course. I did. That's why you got into it. I, I did. Um, I, 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 to say a worldwide superstar, I, I don't know that I had that until later in life. Uh, we have to back up a little bit. I grew up on a little farm, uh, first in Saskatchewan and then Manitoba. We didn't have running water. We didn't have any of that stuff. And this was this was in the late '60s, early '70s. Television was not a, a part of our life at all. I watched a Hee Haw once in a while on on television and thought, oh, this is cool. And I wanted to be an artist right from the time I was seven years old, but I didn't know it was an artist. All I knew is I wanted to sing for my supper. I thought, how cool would it be to get paid to be a singer? I didn't have this massive influx of social media that told me the only time you're successful is when you're a multimillionaire. So I was very lucky. All I ever wanted to do was make a living at singing. And for 45 years, that's all I've had to do is sing. So... I was very successful in what I did, but to be honest with you, the record deal was not the height of my success. It was not even a large part of my success. I uh, I was an independent artist. I put out 14 albums on my own, and I only put out one of the albums with Curb. And uh, because of uh, artistic differences, because of uh, the way that, you know, first of all, they wanted me to take my wedding ring off. And uh, it was one of those things I didn't want to do. So, you know, we butted heads on that. There was just, there was little things we butted our heads on. And uh, me being a stubborn son of a bitch, like I am, uh, while it's been very good for me in a lot of ways, it's also been, you know, very detrimental to my career and me personally. You know, I've, uh, you know, I've butted heads with many people and I've been wrong many times. And, uh, you know, the thing about a record deal, is that you have to be amicable. You have to really understand that they are looking out for you because if you fail, they fail. 
You know what right. I mean? I, the only I think you pointed yeah. to something that's really poignant in that at times you need to look at a record deal uh, a little bit less through the lens of self-interest and more through the lens of an overarching holistic partnership. And and I often say to my clients, like, we want to negotiate hard on your behalf. But if we negotiate too hard and we get a deal that only works for you, we will kill the long-term incentivization of our partner on the other side to deliver. Because they will have other artists who have more deals that are, are more in their favor and they'll put more hard work uh, behind those artists they'll put more effort behind those artists and at some point you're going to see the reality of that so we have to get a deal that works for you but works for you in the short term and long term well that that thank you because you brought that exactly to where i was headed you just did it in a lot less words which is great <laughs> i that's exactly <laughs> what i was trying to say and you know the funny thing is is that as i got a little bit older I started to listen to what my dad used to say. And anybody who's hung out with me uh, in, in any amount of time has probably heard me say my favorite thing. And it, it, it's so important that people understand that. And it's directly connected to what you just said. And the saying I use all the time is that I have never sat down and ate an entire cow at one sitting. But I eat steak almost every night. You know, so you just got to take small bites. You got to understand it's all about that. And that I didn't understand when I first got my record deal. They wanted to sign me. It was exciting. I had just come from being a, a staff writer at Harlan Howard Songs, which, as you know, that's uh, uh, that is my greatest honor in my career is the fact that Harlan Howard, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, the dean of country music, saw something in me and invited me to come to Nashville and write. Yeah, at the age of 14, he saw something. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, you know, it, it's pretty cool that that happened. And I was able to go down because of that and, and really, uh, you know, advance as a writer. And when I left him, when I left Harlan, Harlan said, Kenny, you got to go get a record deal. Take whatever songs you want, go get a record deal. And I said, really? And he says, yeah, just go down the street and, and, you know, just go to a record company. And literally the reason I ended up at Curb, and I've told this story a hundred times, is I was driving down 16th and on the right-hand side, there was Sony and on the left-hand side was Curb and Sony didn't have any parking in front of it. So I pulled into Curb. <laughs> I walked in and I said, I want to talk to somebody about a record deal. And they kind of looked at me funny. And uh, I said to them, I said, well, uh, you know, I'm managed by Pam Brown, you know, and, uh, I said, my, uh, I, I just was writing for Harlan Howard for the last five years or four years. And he said, uh, go down and see if you can get a record deal. And when I said that, the guy popped his head out from back behind in a uh, like a cloak room almost. It was a supply room. He stuck his head out and said, you wrote for Harlan? I said, yeah. He said, come on in. And so I went in, sat down, talked to him, and it turned out that was Mike Curb himself. So <laughs> he gave me the and record. He was the one who uh, he was he's, the one who was yeah. the architect of the deal. Absolutely, he's he's the one who signed me. Yeah, it wasn't. Which uh, you know, the irony to that is that hurt me as well. You know, uh, which is funny to say that, but it it didn't help me because I didn't have his uh, you know his 
underling staff, and I, I don't mean that disrespectfully because they, they are what make it, is the, the people that you have. His soldiers, that's exactly right. I didn't have any of his soldiers in my camp from the right. beginning that had this passion and this love. And when I got this wonderful record deal, uh, I only looked at it from my point of view. I didn't look at it from anybody because I really believe, hey, at this time I had already had you know, a couple of top 10 hits, I, you know, in Canada, I'd done fairly well, you know, made a really good living, sold, you know, an awful lot of records off the stage, because I was a working fool. But, um, you know, I looked at it when I can do everything. So it doesn't matter as long as I have the record deal. And so I like you say, I went and I made a deal that was good for me. And it wasn't good for everybody. And because of that, it wasn't good for me in the long run. You know, short while it looked really good. You know, you go out and sell a few thousand records in the states, and you make pretty good money off it. You go, oh, I'm going to be a billionaire, and it ended right away. You know, nobody else is making money. There's no money gets put into advertising. There's no money gets put into any kind of promotion or artist development. And you know, me being a bit of an arrogant dick, I thought, well, they don't need to develop me as an artist. I'm the best there is. You know, because right. if you don't think that as an artist. If you don't believe in yourself, who the hell else is going to believe in you? So, you know, that's what I always believed is I, you know, I can sit in front of any audience and make them like me. And I thought I can do the same on a massive, massive scale. And it doesn't work that way. You don't have, we come back to what we were talking about earlier. You, you don't have team. that. Yeah. And not only that, but you don't have on a massive stage, you don't have that one-on-one -on -one connection where you have a chance to kind of look into everybody's eyes and, and have that direct eye contact that makes them understand and like you. You know, you don't have that on a massive scale. You've got to make them do that through the Jimmy Kimmel, through the everything. And, you know, while, while I did, you know, shit. 80, 80 or 90 cities in the, in the States on a promotional tour and you get 80 or 90 fans out of that. <laughs> that that's, that's about it. You know, you get to sit and talk to the guy at the radio and laugh like him, laugh with him like you and I are doing for half an hour, but only 30 seconds of you goes on the radio and most of the time they're lighting a cigarette, they're changing channels, they're doing whatever for that 30 seconds you're on. So, you have to just keep beating it to death, you know, but. Yeah, it is, it is definitely it. a war of attrition. And, and one thing that I, that I often preach to um, my clients or anybody who's willing to listen is uh, in this day and age where we have more tools available to build brand, whether it's through social media, whether it's through uh, direct distribution to consumers through uh, YouTube or other streaming platforms, I'm a big fan of build your brand and your equity to a point where it's unmanageable. And then if, it, if it's potentially scalable, you will attract the right types of partners who can take your business from micro to macro. But you have to be willing to, uh, and, and it's funny because artist development obviously sometimes has this pejorative connotation to it where people feel a little offended especially if they've been at it for a decade or more like you had at the time when you signed with curb but it's sort yep. of more like brand development it's like it's not it's not your artistry that you need to develop although that's going to get refined and get better it's it's that we need to create some level of brand entrenchment that makes you a household name in order to really promote your product effectively 
Um, Harlan once said something to me that I think every artist needs to, to think about. And uh, he said it as a compliment to me. And I was incredibly, you know, I, I thought it was cool at the time. I thought it was a neat way of saying it. But as I get older, I realize, wow, what a wonderful thing. And he told me, he said, I had been blessed with one of the biggest swords he had ever seen. He said, but God, you need to sharpen it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And that's the thing is every day, singers sing, entertainers entertain. You know, uh, my old man was the hardest working man I'd ever seen in my life. And so every time I know you and I have both been asked to go on these uh, conferences and that and speak to people. And one of the things I always tell them is that, for God's sake, just because you've been given the gift of being a, a good entertainer, of being a great singer, of being a great songwriter, does not mean you don't have to put your work boots on every morning. Because that's what our parents did. That's what our grandparents did. That's what everybody needs to do is every day get up and put your work boots on and just work until you can't work anymore. And you'll find success. I mean, I look at it. I'm not, I'm not a star. And, you know, it'd be a pretty small or pretty huge sky if I was going to be a star. But I have made a wonderful living off of it for 40 years. So anybody to tell me I'm not a successful artist is an idiot. Period. That's it. And you have to look well, success at it that is way. defined by your own definition, right? Like that's absolutely that's the thing is that um, back to your point of you might have been blessed with a gift, and a lot of people who um, have been blessed with the gift and the ability to sing and the ability to entertain, um, obviously you want to refine that, but you also have to come to terms with the reality that even though you might be great in the eyes of yourself and your immediate circle the marketplace mm -hmm. may not have the same level of excitement or receptivity to what it is you and, do. And it's timing. George Strait is one of the greatest of all time as far as radio play, as far as everything goes. But honestly, Jim, if he was a new artist and brought out a song today, it would not necessarily be a massive hit. He might be another one of the guys that just went by the wayside. Uh, when I was in Nashville, I knew 20 artists who were absolutely amazing. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be so great. You know, we all played the same circuit down there. You know, we'd, we'd get our deal and then we'd go and play, you know, all these little broken spokes and places like that for industry, you know? So they were the best of the best that was not only seeing it, but that was performing. And so many of these artists disappeared. Dickie Kaiser was amazing, an amazing artist out of Texas. And nothing happened, but that didn't mean he wasn't good. It just right. meant timing wasn't right. Something wasn't right. There, you know, uh, Kenny Chesney is a, is a miracle in my opinion. You know, at the time nobody thought Kenny Chesney would get a record deal to save his life. You know, in fact, at the time I lived with Big Kenny down in Nashville, and Kenny Chesney and Ken Mellons lived right across the street from us in the in the apartments that we were living in, and uh, we all thought. Kenny was the least of them to go on and do anything. You know, we, of course, you know, we all thought we were way better than him. <laughs> yeah, Chesney's an interesting one because, you know, the, the other thing that's shifted about our industry, <coughs> Reba Sorry. is a perfect example of this. Oh, that's okay. Um, uh, bless you. Uh, Reba didn't break and have a top 10 till her 23rd single. Uh, Vince Gill was, I believe, over 10 singles in before he had a hit. Steve yep. Warner, similar situation. But oh. labels were more apt to buy into the artist, the art, 
and deploy patience along with effort and initiative against that artist to break them where these days the the bigger labels are you know the attention span is shorter um they are throwing things against the wall to see what sticks and if it does stick uh it might make it if it doesn't that artist probably has to uh reconfigure uh, recalibrate and release something independently to get their attention again um but we did see more uh attention given to the long-term development of an artist back in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. And now that seems to have gone by the wayside. But I think a lot of that, again, is that's the fault of the lawyers. That's the fault of the, you know, uh, of the the people going along with it, because all of a sudden along came the 360 deal, which again, for those, uh, those of you who are not in the music industry, a 360 deal means that the, the record company gets a percentage of everything, 360 degrees, no matter what an artist does, what back in, in when I was doing it and, and before all they got was the album. They made money off of the album or the video, whatever they produced, they made money off of that. And they did make the lion's share. So to me, now because it's a 360 deal, they love take a a Morgan Whalen. Morgan Whalen comes out, has a couple of hits. He goes from being a guy who was working for $75 a night, if he was lucky, playing, you know, down, (laughs) down at one of the local pubs in Nashville, you know, he goes from doing that to all of a sudden being worth immediately a hundred thousand and then having another hit and he's worth 750,000, you know, a night, which is ironic that, you know, that's how it works. I'm not saying he's worth 750 now, but I'm saying it, it elevates so quickly. And the only reason it does elevate that fast is because the record company sees an opportunity where they can make so much money off of live performance. And they're taking a massive chunk of that live performance. So then they go and they put all that energy into into promoting, not not saying, okay, let's develop him as an artist. He's a great entertainer. He's a this, he's a that. They see an opportunity where they can make massive money. So they put a huge, huge push on it. Chris Stapleton is a perfect example of that. Nobody cared about Chris. Nobody. The record company, he was lucky because he had such he was such a great artist that he needed one break. He got his foot in the door. And he blew it wide open. But most of the artists, in my, you know, in my not so humble opinion, coming out of Nashville, are not, um, they're not seasoned veterans. They're looking for the young guy. They're not taking the time to develop them into artists like Vince Gill or Reba, uh, two absolute perfect examples of that. So they want to make their money now. And they don't care if the artist disappears. They don't care if he disappears three years from now because they're not making money off of record sales the way they used to. You know, they needed those artists to develop and to all of a sudden start selling millions for them to make any Well, and, and there were some um, evolutions or de-evolutions in the business, obviously, between the 90s and the early 2000s where record sales plummeted. So labels needed to get a bit more innovative and get deeper into business with their artists. And from an artist's perspective, there is an upside to the 360 deal as much as you're giving them a percentage of merch and live and everything else yeah. in that, as you pointed out, the label is now much more invested in you because you are a revenue driver for them to make sure you're successful. 
So Absolutely. as much as as much as I have a natural reaction to not want to be anywhere near a 360 deal um, when I'm representing the interests of an artist, there is the other side of the argument that goes, hey, listen, if Universal Music or Sony wants a piece of all these revenue streams, they believe you are going to produce. And if we show them that you can indeed do that, uh, perhaps we can pare that revenue down in terms of percentages over time. But in the beginning, when most of the groundwork and legwork needs to be done, they're going to be on the ground alongside you fighting the good fight. And so that's why it's important to give them more, especially in the beginning, because they will help you launch your start. And then at some point, what you're paying them almost becomes inconsequential because Absolutely. you're making so much in, you know, in, in all aspects of your career that it really doesn't matter as much. So that's an interesting take on the 360 idea and something that obviously you've um, uh, sat with for a while, for sure. Yeah, I, hey, I'm not against the 360 deal. I look at it and go, if I'd have had a 360 deal when I was a young artist, I think it probably would have been much more motivating. But they, you know, again, you have to look at it from both sides on every negotiation. You have to look at all sides all the time because of just that. Right now, artists, we don't sell anywhere near the the records. I mean, you look at the industry, as you mentioned, the, the CDs sales are, are in the tank, you know, no matter where you go. Even with me, I play to, to you know, 50 to 70-year-old people every night. I used to sell 10 times the records that I sell now to the same yeah. age group. But it's because everybody's got their phone and they go, oh, can I, can I buy this? Can I, you know what I mean? Can I download it? Can I get it this way? Uh, you know, CDs, uh, CD burners killed the industry in the, you know, in the early or late eighties, early nineties, it killed the industry of mm -hmm. record sales. And again, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. That's just the way it, it, it goes. So we have to adapt. We have to be amicable. You know, we're, we're going around in circles here. No, no technology question. has been blessed, has been both a blessing and a curse to the music industry. There's no doubt about that. But I think the underlying message that, that you are, um, advocating for here is if you want to make more money, a very important question to ask yourself is how do I be of more value to my partners? How do That's I exactly it, make them That's more money? And by virtue of that, my interest will be taken care of. That's exactly right. I, I And again, another thing, when we do these, these little seminars, one of the things is I always say, know your value. Know your value, because if you ask for more, the last thing I want to do, Jim, is to charge you $10,000 for a show and knowing that you're only going to sell $9,000 worth of tickets. Why would I do that? Why do you want to, you know, uh, crap in your own lunch kit? You know, it doesn't make sense. You know, uh, sorry for the analogy, but <laughs> it's just one of those things that it doesn't make sense to me. So you hit it on the head there. Know your value understand that you have to give something in order to get it and uh, i think our industry is going to be fine coming back to the uh, uh the virus i think that you know the world will find a way of, of curing itself you know uh, and i think the music industry while it's a huge part to us we're just you know we're just one of the ants on the hill and we need to understand that it's got to get better for everybody before it can ever get better for us
Right. No, well, listen, I think it's going to come back very robust. We just have to wait it out. Um, one last uh, uh, subject that I want to touch on here before we wrap things up, because we've already been talking for over an hour, believe it or not, is um, <laughs> your evolution as an artist to a festival promoter. So at what point did you realize that there was opportunity in the festival game? And how did you make the decision to pull the trigger to get into that industry after after being on the other side of it for so long? Um, you know, it, it actually, it, it came quite organically, I guess you'd say. I uh, I was very lucky. Claude and Diane out at the Merritt Mountain Music Festival were huge supporters of mine. Uh, you know, they, they did some show promoting and everything. And, you know, they were a big part of me getting to work with guys like Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard and George Jones and all the artists of the day. They put me on several tours and stuff like that. So I was very thankful. And I understood at, at that age how lucky I was to have that festival. And they, they had me on that show 18 years straight and always on the main stage, always in a good position, even though to be honest with you, I probably didn't deserve it. I know I didn't deserve it as far as radio went, but they looked at it and went, well, you're, you know, you're quite good as an entertainer, which, you know, at the time, I, I think I probably was, you know, very good at what I did. So they loved having me in a good spot. So I looked at it and went, that helped my career immensely. You know, uh, I, I tell the story of opening for Garth Brooks years ago. And while I was not any real part of the show nobody cared they wouldn't have i never sold one ticket on that show but that poster that had me trish yearwood michelle wright and uh garth brooks on that poster that poster made me more money than i could you could possibly imagine you know um pretty good brand pretty good brand rub as we would say Yes, relatively, you know, that, that's all relative, the amount of money, but a huge brand run. It really was. To be able to say my name, that I had worked with all of these artists was massive. So I thought I had heard through the grapevine, and I spoke to Claude, and uh, I, I knew they were in real trouble. They were in real serious trouble. And I so spoke Claude, Claude, for people who don't know, Claude used to run Merritt Mountain Music Festival in Merritt, British Columbia, which is now the same site that Rock and River Fest is hosted on, where Kenny obviously is a partner along with Live Nation. Um, yeah. So Claude was getting himself in trouble financially, overextended himself in some other businesses, and there was yeah. an opportunity there for you to potentially take the fest festival over. Yeah, and... While I didn't want to do that because uh, because there were so many skeletons, you know, like the problem is, is when you start floundering in an industry like this and you have to borrow money and you have to do this, it it gets it's like nothing else in the world. This is this is an animal, a beast that until you've been behind the stage and in front of the stage and on the stage and under the stage, it's hard to imagine what a beast a festival really is. So. I, being the guy that I am, I watched it go on for a long time. And then when I heard that the festival was, you know, probably in too much trouble, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to start another festival. So you were there right from the beginning. You, you put some of the artists on that stage the first time I did it back in 2008. And uh, so I started one in Mission called the Rock and River Music Festival. And 
with the whole time, the whole thought process behind it was let's develop it, let's get a name started so that if that wonderful festival, the Mountain Music Festival, does collapse, there is still a diving board for local artists to get on along with some names, some of the big names, and get in front of audiences that make a difference. And because getting in front of, you know, even three, 4,000 people at a time, rather than, you know, 30 or 40 people makes a massive difference in your career. It's huge. Like, uh, to me, festivals are so important for starting artists, for young artists. And, you know, I'm a, I, I, I truly am a fan of artists, more than music, more than music. I'm a fan of artists. I, I think that people that take a risk like this are, are pretty incredible people that get up and, and, and sing or tell jokes or whatever. Artists are amazing people to me. And uh, most of them I don't like hanging around with for more than the time they're on stage because we're kind of social idiots. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, they're, they're some of my very best friends in the whole world. All my friends are musicians. But uh, anyway, I decided that I was going to do this festival and found out very, very quickly, you can't make money doing the festival. You have to develop it. It has to... It, you know, it has to run its cycle of four or five years of losing money. Six, seven years turns into 10 or 15 real quick. So um, having toured with a lot of artists, I thought, well, let's just do some smaller shows. And so I know you and I worked together on several and, uh, you know, did artists like Dwight Yoakam, Travis Tritt, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, you know, Winona, Tanya, Reba, you know, all of these different artists. And I would make my money from that from the from the indoor shows in order to supplement all the money I had put in from writing songs and singing and therefore kept the festival afloat. And uh, then uh, in 2015, I moved it back out to the property that was the original intent anyway. You know, it took six years to get there, but uh, we moved it out there. And uh, I took on the, uh, in 2017, took on Live Nation as uh, uh, co-promoters on the show. And, well, uh, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been an experience uh, all the way through. You know, you develop uh, some things you realize are really good ideas and other ones you realize are really bad ideas. And, uh, you know, uh, you try and have... <laughs> you know, you that's all a part up. of it, right? Yeah, you want to have one more up than you have down. You know, and then you'll be all right. But uh, as you know, promoting shows is a very, very, very expensive and very, very dangerous game. But it's also an addiction. There's there's something about it. It's like gambling. You know, it's my form of gambling. Yeah, it makes no sense on paper, but neither does gambling. No, the only reason I'm talking so yeah. openly about it is because I put the rifles away and my, my wife's not home right now. So because if I was talking about it like this so openly, <laughs> she'd probably load that gun. <laughs> we live in a oh, much man. smaller house. Well, we live it... in a much smaller house now than we did when I started this industry. <laughs> Kenny, the the industry, the artists, uh, people like myself, the agents, the managers, we owe you a debt of gratitude for bringing your vision no. to fruition, for giving artists a platform and a stage to perform their music to an audience, and uh, and and for for really 
showing people that with some hard work, some innovation, you can create something very grand from humble beginnings. So congratulations to you and your family on everything you've been able to pull together with Rock and River Fest. I am heartfelt and hopeful that you will be able to pull something off this year in 2021. If not, I look forward to 2022. And um, I want to thank you for sharing all your wisdom today. Thank you, Jim. I'm not sure that it's wisdom, but it's definitely a point of view. And uh, listen, I'm 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 indebted to you and and many other people who were there right from the beginning, and uh, you know gave me a chance to to create this animal. And uh, while sometimes I think the animal's going to eat me before I get a chance to you know to see anything at the same time, I don't regret it for a minute. Uh, my life has always been music. I love musicians. I uh, I love artists, and uh, I just it, I can't imagine doing anything differently than I've done it. And uh, while I said I wasn't that successful uh, in a record deal, I feel the greatest the the, the 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 greatest amount of gratitude anybody could ever have at the fact that you know I'm closing in on sixty years old and. I'm crying because I had to cancel 119 shows, but I don't know too many guys my age that have not had success and had 119 shows to cancel. So I'm pretty happy uh, that people still come out and see me and guys like you give me a chance to come and talk and they give a damn about what I have to say. So I appreciate Absolutely. it. And thanks to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Deep well of wisdom, my friend. And uh, I look forward to um, catching up with you this summer and uh, thanks again for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Thanks, Jim.